Hello, and a very warm welcome to the Understanding Users podcast, brought to you by Researchable UX. It's great to have you with me. I'm your host, Mike Green. I'm a freelance user research lead and digital consultant based in the UK. Over the coming weeks, I'm going to be chatting to various digital experts who I've had the pleasure of working with in recent years. They're from various disciplines, including user research, UX design, development, and product management. And they'll even be a digital business owner or two. I'll be talking to them about how they came to be in their current roles, what they've learned along the way, and what advice they may have for others getting into the field. These are intended to be relaxed, informal chats with professionals who are keen to share their experiences. So sit back and enjoy. In this third episode of Understanding Users, John and I chat about his career in research and service design, the power of collaborative design workshops, and the real benefits that using evidence-based user insight can bring when you're trying to win round sceptical project stakeholders. He also plays my three-card challenge to share his favourite UX tool, favourite UX technique, and a current trend he sees in user experience. I hope you enjoy the episode. Just before you listen, a brief footnote for those from outside the UK or unfamiliar with the Dartford crossing, which we chat about in a second. This is a motorway toll road that lies to the far east end of London. All road traffic crossing the River Thames, either over a bridge for those going south or through a tunnel for those going north, must pay an electronic toll known as the Dart charge. Now, on with the episode. So my guest this time is Dr. John Sykes, who's currently Head of Service Standards at Highways England. And prior to that, he's held a bunch of very senior digital roles in product design, user research and and service design in both the public and private sector. Welcome to the show, John. (laughs) Thank you, Mike. That sounds very prestigious. Make me sound really important. Well done. No one's ever done that. (laughs) Are we talking about the same John Sykes? (laughs) Where is he? So tell us a bit about what you're up to at the moment, John, and uh, kind of how you come to be where you are. Sure. Um, so I'm currently helping um, Highways England or National Highways that are now rebadged with the Dart charge. I don't know if you've ever been through. Yeah, actually, you live quite close to Dartford Tunnel, so you've probably been across that and through that several times. And you're probably aware of some of the pain points. Um, so there's a lot of issues around... How do people know that there is a charge to go through the Dartford Tunnel in the first place? What, still um, after all these years? <laughs> well, if you're coming down from Scotland and you're going on holiday and uh, you've never even heard of this Dartford Tunnel thing, yes, you can be quite surprised. So, yeah, there's lots of issues in the sense that people don't know there is a charge. If there is a charge, how much they have to pay, um, when they've got to pay by before they start hitting a, a fine of £70 from a £2.50 charge. Um, and... At the moment, you know, largely that information is portrayed by a road signage, which, as you can imagine, is quite difficult to read at the best of times. Um, it's quite a stressful time driving through there. I don't know if you remember the last time you went through the tunnel, but, you know, you've got lorries coming in from all lanes. Um, it suddenly narrows. You're going through a tunnel. There's lots of uh, signage all over the place. So it's, it's often very hard just to keep up with the signage. So... We're really interested in how we improve the service so that we have uh, people feel informed. I mean, imagine if you're coming from uh, another country as well. So you're coming in straight over into Dover, straight up the motorway, cross the tunnel, know nothing about it, and suddenly um, you've got a fine. So, yeah, we're really looking at how we help people to know there is um, 
a fee to pay, what the fee is, and how best to pay it. And um, it's quite a challenge. It really is because you know it's, it, our routes to market are quite different to um, normal spaces. So you, you drive along, and at the moment the sign he says pay online doesn't tell you what the url is because you can't be sitting there in your car writing that down no phone numbers to give you or anything like that so actually the design challenge is really really interesting so yeah looking forward to uh, helping the team so my job in um national highways is to help um embed service standards across the organization but specifically um, i'm helping the team who are at the moment looking at the dark tunnel and, and really trying to help them guide them through the process so that they design the best service for the users and then hopefully do well when it comes to the GDS assessment as well. So, you know, it's kind of, I'm there to help guide them through the, the assessment, but at the same time, my fundamental goal is to make sure that whatever we design is good um, for citizens so that people know what they're doing and, and don't get caught out and end up with a you know, 70 pound fine. It's quite, it's, it, it's it's funny you say that because I think the last time I used the Dartford Bridge, I, I live about an hour north. We had changed our car recently, and my wife thought I had updated the Dartford account, and I thought she'd done it. And I merrily passed over, thinking I don't need to pay. And then about a week or two later, I got the aforementioned fine in the post for for non registration of the car, and I was absolutely livid. But uh, so I hope I you can to... work your your no, no, I mean, I'll deep be magic. And <laughs> I chose the gig because I have experienced exactly the same kind of pain. So... <laughs> Quite recently, um, I went through it, knew I had an account, was pretty sure my car was on it. And then my wife said, I think you should just check, you know, did you put this car on it? You know, we had the camper van, we've had a motorbike. So, you know, I, I could have just not put this car on. So I went to check it, realized yeah. it closed my account oh. because my card was apparently no longer valid. And uh, they told me, um, but it went to spam, never saw it. So, yeah. Right. Um, also felt that pain and really empathized with all the users. In fact, you can't throw a stick really without finding somebody who's you know, been impacted by the service. And that's why I really want to make a difference. And, and that's really right. why I choose right. this career is because I, I love difficult challenges and, and really trying to right. add value to the lives of everybody around me. Right. Interesting. So kind of user-centered design, you've already touched on this already in terms of kind of thinking about the users. And we are all, I suppose, anyone who drives or, uh, over that bridge or the tunnel is a user in that sense kind of how does how does user-centered design impact the work you do day to day in the team and kind of how you inform the, the the improvements in the process that you're working on we follow um an agile process um we split our work into multiple phases um in this project for example we start off with a pre-discovery during the pre-discovery work we had a lot of the bau staff were because like getting complaints from um people looking at the behaviors based on the data that's coming through the systems and from that kind of started to build an idea of what you know what the problems were from a user's perspective we then, and BAU just for those who are not oh, sorry with business, as usual, business as usual the guys yeah. who are there all the time day in day out looking at um helping people through the crossing dealing with the, the complaints that come through um also looking at you know we've got a massive um 95 percent of people pay without a problem there's only five percent of the population who um are caught out at the moment but you know a lot of those people who are caught out um you know wanted to pay but just forgot about mm-hmm. it and, and that's what's come through from a lot of our research so um everything we do is very much based on 
user interviews to really truly understand what the needs of the users are. Um, and then also what we don't talk about so often is the fact that we also look at what the business needs are as well, you know, as in what are their requirements? What are the, what are the constraints that we've got to work with? Um, there's quite a few legislation issues, for example, when it comes to um, the Dartford Tunnel about, you know, um, when officially um, you are liable for the debt. So I think you have to pay within um, by midnight the next day. Um, and that, you know, that's a, a piece of legislation which makes it very, it's not that we can't change it. But it's very, very hard to change legislation. It's not something we can do overnight. And it's have to have quite a lot of evidence to say that there's a good reason for doing so. So right. that's just one example of a constraint. Right. Um, if we want to change the road signage, it takes roughly about four years um, to work through the process. You've got a very strict set of rules about what you can put on road signage um, in context of font, uh, what you're legally allowed to put in there, how many words you can have on there, how often the signage can be there. So there's huge amounts of constraints that you're working with as well. So what I love about the work is, is that frisson between um, what the user needs and what the constraints are. And, and, and you know, when you squeeze that all together, I think that's yeah. when you get the most exciting solutions in the design. Um, I can remember reading about Hollywood directors, you know, when they're starting out, they do their best work. And as soon as someone gives them all the money in the world and takes away all those constraints, suddenly it's all a bit of a sloppy mess of a movie. And I feel like that seems to happen in cross design. So, yeah, I, I, I do love coming across those constraints and working with them and, and using your creativity and your um not just your creativity, but also bringing everyone together and holding it for everybody. So one of my background is service design, and I always argue that, you know, what I do really is coordinate, facilitate, and articulate. You know, my job is to kind of bring everyone together, um, yeah. understand what the design process is, um, make sure we I take people through that process, um, and kind of hold the vision and articulate what people are saying and, and kind of hold it for everybody else so they don't have to take that time. I don't have to be, you know, a super expert in any of those particular disciplines. I can't be, but the people around me, the people who use the service, the you know, yep. stakeholders within that service, they are the experts, and I just hold it for them. And I, you know, feel very honoured to have that kind of um, opportunity to do that for them. So, yeah, my, that's my background. That's how I end up where I am. Um, I love service design. I think it's truly the. I, I love it because it sort of like goes. It does going from the gamut of user research through the, to the creativity part to work. I love working with the stakeholders and, and evaluating mm-hmm. all these great ideas and also, you know, working with the users and what if you've got a digital um, touch points, you know, working with interaction designers to work out how that might play out on the screen or, or on a, a phone and then bring it all together and watching that product um, grow and breathe and live. And then, from the point of a vision, then working it through through the the product delivery, and um, seeing to what extent you know your your vision, your dream actually ends up matching reality by the time it comes out the other end, and and following the you know an agile approach like we do, you know these things change and, and people's needs yeah, change and wants change, so um, it's not uncommon for you know that vision to change quite drastically perhaps by the time it actually comes to realization. 
Yeah, that that's fascinating. And uh, in comparison with a lot of the digital services that you know the likes of you and I often work on, where everything is kind of in the cloud and it's all virtual, you're talking about physical signage and bits of concrete and cars. I know, I know. And it's isn't that, that physical, funny? digital sort of. It's yeah, it's a it's, it's a very so, different so way of thinking, isn't it? Yeah. You and I worked for many years, and we've worked very heavily in that kind of digital arena. You know, with other touch points, with you know, usually paper or phone. But working on highways with huge amounts of infrastructure, you know, part of this service is putting cameras in places so that they can read your number plate as you go through. Um, as you say, you know, signage on the roadside. Um, but also, what else can we do to in other channels as well? And when we're looking at you know how we work with other um, app operators, um, navigation devices. So that people just are aware of, you know, there is a, a payment in the first place. So you're sitting there as a, almost everybody who goes through the tunnel actually does some form of working out what their route's going to be. You know, they, they use Google Maps. So, you know, imagine you're using Google Maps and it comes up and says, oh, you're going to go through a tunnel. Do you want to prepay? Save you the hassle now. So we're looking at all of these different options at the moment to see how we can make that pain free. And you talked earlier on about you know, the users being very diverse. So people from abroad, people from elsewhere in Britain. And then you also mentioned kind of interviewing them. I'm interested to know kind of how you've identified the different user groups and how you've recruited to kind of know that you're covering all of the users that are going to be using the service. Well, and can you imagine what that's like during COVID as well? Um, yes. So, yeah, I mean, um, so because the service is already out there, so we've got generation one um, because right. of that, um, we do have quite a lot of data about the people who are using the service, people who are um, paying, people who are using it regularly, a lot of the pain points. Um, so we are fortunate to have quite a well-defined um, right. set of cohorts of people to interview. The hardest bit at the moment, as I'm sure you've probably got the same problem we've got, is um, we're really interested in those people who struggle with technology. And can you imagine we've got these signs that as you go through the tunnel that say, you know, the way you go and pay is online. And then actually we've got a whole cohort that actually doesn't like technology and doesn't want to go online and re resists going online. And we do have some really good solutions already in play. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but you can actually go to the post office um, or news agent to, to pay the charge. But um, no, I did not know that. No, yes, exactly. So <laughs> how do we get that information to people? And it's been really hard doing that user research with assisted digital populations because we just not having that face-to-face -face interviews like we were able to a few years ago. So whereas we can um, have interviews online like this uh, and we can take people through um, prototypes and, and do a lot of the, the standard work that we did perhaps in a lab, we can still manage to make do online. It's maybe not as good, but we, we can still do it. Really, really hard with... Um, people who are really trying to avoid technology. Not impossible. Obviously, you've still got telephone um, and, and other medium. It's just our normal go-tos yeah, outside yeah, yeah. of um, actually seeing people. Usually are based around such technology as this, where we're able to see each other and talk to each other on a computer. But I'm intrigued. How, how have you been coping with um, these, these same design challenges? 
Well, it, it's so interesting you say that because this very week, earlier this week, uh, some colleagues and I were doing a round of uh, testing with a group of assisted digital users and we did it face-to-face. And it's the first time I've done face-to-face interviews with anyone in about 18 months. And it was it was just a breath of fresh air. And I'm this 77-year-old gent who'd come in and we were all wearing masks and you know we were all making sure everyone had been double jabbed because obviously he was in, more vul- in the vulnerable category. Watching him use his sort of relatively old smartphone to try and take a picture of a passport photo <laughs> I had to print out of a mocked up wow. passport. This is part of the process. There was a passport photo upload uh, for this is a particular government department and watching him trying to take a picture with his mobile phone and then email it to, to me. And, uh, and I watched over his shoulder and he allowed me to do that as he kind of, and the font size on his phone and the way he kind of attached the photo and then watching him sending it to me and then trying to retrieve the email from, from the desktop that we'd set up for him to use. Uh, I mean, it was really fascinating. I mean, he, he struggled. Uh, he got there in the end. But I guess my point being that there's no substitute for the contextual, as you and I well know, sitting in front of people, seeing the whites of their eyes without this screen in front of you. Um, and it was just so rich. And that's the thing we've all been missing, I think, in research in the last year and a half. I, I, and we have, haven't we? I mean, that contextual research that we could do before, we just haven't been able to do it. And we really are relying on... It's It's almost like... We've got a very narrow view into people's lives at the moment, whereas before yeah. we would step yeah. into their lives, we would um, be in the workplace when we were interviewing them or in their home space, depending on where they were. So you could sort of get to understand, you know, a lot of detail that you wouldn't necessarily pick up by just having a telephone conversation or even just even using Skype like we're, we're doing at the mm. moment. Um, you can peer into someone's room, but, you know, if normally they're going to be in a different situation, it's very, very hard to capture that mm-hmm. that detail, that the rich detail that really um, feeds into good design, I think. I'm thinking back to that pensioner's apartment in Alicante that, that you and I were invited into by by that, you know, one research participant in the, we were doing some work on the overseas healthcare and sitting in their apartment and talking to them and, and you could sort of feel the warm breeze on the balcony and uh, <laughs> it was it was very nice <laughs> and it was very yeah and, and you and the, yeah, there's a photo you, that I think is, you, is this a sales pitch for doing user uh, research yes you, you <laughs> go to county. yes you were in uh, south africa um you, you, we've had quite a good run, haven't we? We have, and and Romford County Court. Nothing that's nothing wrong with Romford, <laughs> but uh, we, we've been to many many different places. Um, stakeholders, you mentioned those earlier. I'm interested to know, kind of, and I've touched on this with other guests, the whole kind of bringing stakeholders with you on the journey, making sure everyone's kind of bought into the vision, so you don't end up with sort of, dare I say, it, policy derailing it for for their own, you know, very positive reasons. How do you kind of work with that, and particularly in something as big as I suppose the dark? I'll so, be honest. So- um, I would say that that is, in my role, definitely at the moment, and is 90% of my work, 90, right. I would say. Uh, right. Even as a service designer, I would have said it was 50 or 60% of what you're trying to do is, it's not like herding cats, it's it's, it's like nudging them slowly over time <laughs> so that they, they come along on the journey with you. Um, and helping them, often stakeholders don't necessarily understand the benefit you're bringing and you taking a user-centric approach um right. they can see it as kind of a, a slow process or um you must have had this a lot yourself mike you know it's like well you're just telling us what we already know uh, mm. um but the truth is they had a lot of assumptions in their knowledge yes. and what you're actually yeah. bringing them is um evidence-based triangulated yeah facts about 
what the needs are, which is different to assumptions and anecdotes and a gut feeling, which is generally what you find that a lot of your stakeholders might have. So actually being able to validate that um, assumption and actually turn out. And also, I think it's really interesting because they'll say that, yeah, we know all that. But there's always that 20% of the insight that comes out of those show and tells that goes, oh, yeah, okay, I maybe didn't know that bit. And that's really quite interesting. And that's really opens up some of the, the kind of design opportunities that we maybe not have thought of if, had we not done that research. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, taking people with you on that journey is the hardest bit, but also the most important bit. So I have done various pieces of work where we have worked, and, and, and I think there's a project where you and I worked on this before, um, where we didn't have maybe the service owner taking a day-to-day -day interest. In fact, maybe their interest was maybe once every six to eight weeks, which meant that they never saw the decisions and understanding where they came from and, and why you were moving in that particular direction. So when they saw it six to eight weeks later, it was a big mm. piece of work to help them understand why you were making those decisions and why it was as a solution, how it was. And mm. often they, they would even say, no, well, I'm not happy with that, but because you hadn't taken them on that journey and you've, you're being shut down. Whereas if you take people with you and they understand and part of that decision-making you're already in the right direction, aren't you? So, taking a step back a minute, I'm just interested to sure. know kind of your your career trajectory uh, and kind of <laughs> not every uh, everything you've done throughout your entire life, but just kind of how you got to where you got to, and because you've got quite an interesting story, haven't you, in terms of kind of your your academic background and the research you've done and so on and so forth. Yeah, I'm going to step right back to be do my undergraduate. So I remember right. um, being an undergraduate in psychology and. Um, my professor at the time introduced me to a book. It's called The Design of Everyday Things. Brilliant book. I've read it several <laughs> times. Yeah. <laughs> and I read that and realized, actually, this is this is a career I want to move into. I, I, I love um, the concept of mental models, people under, having different ideas of how things work and affordances and how we change um, and work with that rather than sort of like advertising instead of having to give you instructions on how to use something how we can actually incorporate the design so, so it's you don't even notice that you're using something and, and you know you've seen that before all the quotes all over the place you know good design you don't notice it and um so that really captured my imagination in my 20s um i then went on to do a phd in human computer interaction very much interested in um, virtual spaces and how we navigate and build um, models of the world. So mixing that psychology with the technology. Um, and from there, moved into an academic life. Uh, and I set up the games course at Glasgow Caledonian University mm. um, and the Emotion Lab. So um, I set up the Emotion Lab, which is um, a great, great uh, academic facility looking at not only how we measure emotion when people are using technology, but how we might elicit um, emotion when you are using technology. So and we, what kinds of technology in particular or any kind? It, 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 
any kind, but what we were doing, basically, we were very interested in game technology and how mm. um, that impacts motivation. So what are the key elements of gaming that we could take and put into a, a different realm where we could um, help support people in education or if they want to make themselves fitter, how we can, if you want to keep yourself fit, I don't know, you're, you're actually quite good, Mike, because you're quite a good guy. <laughs> Not you're, as good as I used to be, but yes. You know, <laughs> You're motivated to get up in the morning. You, you you don't have the kebabs and the Chinese dinners, and you, you know you're quite healthy. Um, I I suffer from the complete opposite. I I wake up in the morning and go, I cannot face the gym. Um, I <laughs> and um, I'm I'm quite happy to sit there with a, a kebab and a and a pint of beer. You know that we're we're quite different people. Um, and I you know I was one of those people who would struggle with um, maintaining health and weight. And so I was really interested in, you know, what are the elements of gaming technology that incorporate motivation change? Mm. Um, and what, how do we incorporate that into something that would possibly make us healthier? One of the games that I um, was working on uh, straight after my academic career, actually, one of the first products was actually looking at how we get kids off the sofa and into the big wide world around us. And I came up with a version that was like, now Nintendo did a much better job. They, they came up with um, Pokemon Go, but the, the oh, concept we had before that was quite similar. It was the idea that you had to, um, you had characters that were going to battle and to battle, you had to build potions and to get the potions, you had to go and get um, ingredients and some potions would require different ingredients. So if you wanted mermaid scales then you'd have to go and actually physically walk by the seaside and and get the right. scales and, and you'd be looking there with your phone looking for that kind of augmented reality piece and trying to find oh excellent and then you'd have to do some kind of game activity when you were there but the point is what i wanted to do is motivate kids to get off the sofa and drag their parents mm. with them and say come on i want to go for a walk take me for a walk mm. i want to go outside mm. um so yes yeah, so did it um academia left there and then um I realized I actually wanted to make more of an impact, which is, mm. sounds a bit weird. You think, well, you know, academia, you know, you're, you're having a chance to shape the hearts and minds of um, hundreds of students who you, you get the honor of working with. Um, but I, I think I wanted something more tangible. And so I, I left mm. academia, uh, moved into consulting, which was really interesting because you had all the theory of, you know, user mm. research and, mm. well, actually, you are doing research, but it's a very different kind of research sometimes in an academic world. Yeah. But, and also that service design. So I was doing a lot of um, academic work in that space. Um, I'm, I'm publishing papers in that space, but I hadn't got my hands dirty in, in a very um, commercial world. So it was a great opportunity for me to kind of practice what I preach really. And, and fundamentally, I had to go back to, I, I was, you know, quite a senior academic and then suddenly had to go back to the drawing board and start right from the beginning and be a, a grunt and learn how to, you know, I had the theory, but I'd never really done it. And it was, that was great learning. Work, working agency side, I know you've worked agency side as well. Mm. And I think that is the best training you can ever get. You're working super yeah. fast pace. You're yeah. having to be um, juggling multiple projects at the same time. You've got really... Um, important clients that you're having to keep happy uh, and you know you're producing reports you're doing the research and it's just 
constant. And so therefore you mm. get loads and loads of exposure to so many different mm. um, areas of research and uh, design and you're also working with so many different people. So one of the best things I like being, I, I, I don't know if I mentioned this, or but I'm a contractor. And one of the things I love about mm. being a contractor is that I'm thrown into different domains mm. all the time. So yep. I, I learn from so many people about how to be a better UXer, if you mm. want to call it that. And mm. every day, um, yep. even though, you know, I, I'm lucky to have a, a quite a senior role, but people introduce me to... Uh, so many different um, techniques and ideas and thoughts and approaches. Um, somewhat, actually, I don't know if you've ever seen a benefits map. Have you ever seen a benefits map? I'd never seen one before. Never what, come across uh, it. As in UK benefits, like government? No, it was, it was mapping the benefits of your design and showing what, how they all, all the different um, features of your design and mapping right. them to all the different benefits that you're going to get from a user. I'd never, wow. I'd never actually done that before. And this was right. actually not done by a UXer, but it was done by one of the PMO team members. Right. And I just looked at them and went, that's beautiful. And I'm going to incorporate mm. that in my processes. Mm. Usually I really am quite strict on keeping an audit from the, you know, the first piece of evidence in the user research and how that went through to create an insight and from the insight into opportunities and, and, and into the um, design space and then to the you know propositions and when you're testing your proposition your design hypotheses that come from those until you finally got the, the solution I, i'm very into keeping you know what was my design goal and how did i follow that all the way through but i'd never actually created this most beautiful artifact that he, sh he shared with me this week and i went just one example. That's just this week. Every right, day. Right. Is, yep. Every day is a school day. Every day is a school day. Sorry. Yes. I, I know we're full of cliches today. No, cliches are but good. They, 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 they capture truisms, don't they? I, I just want to pick up on one word that you mentioned in that sort of fascinating potted history of your kind of career was the word impact. And I'm and kind of jumping forward again to where you are now and the work we all do generally. How do you think UXs, you know, service designers, researchers, interaction designers can ensure they have an impact on product teams you know obviously with the yeah okay ultimate this is, this game is... of benefiting users so i think this is something that's been bothering me for a while um i think sometimes in our profession mm. we get a bit lost i think we we forget what we're doing it for so as a user researcher, I've seen a lot of user researchers thinking their outcome is to create a persona. That's what the job is. Mm. I've got to create a persona. Yeah. And you go, no, that's not the point of the work. You're, the mm. point of the work is to generate the insight and understanding and trying to find the best way to communicate that to the team so mm. that they can come up with solutions so they can make the best service for the user. Mm. But what we do is we get bogged down by what, you know, what are the outputs rather than what the outcomes we want to try and achieve for our um, user group. And I think when you start doing that, you start realizing you're just going round and round in circles and just doing the same old, same old. And I, actually, if you start thinking about, well, what is it I'm trying to achieve yeah. by doing this research yep. and building this yep. persona and mapping all the hierarchy of needs and all of the wonderful mm. things you do as a user researcher, but what is it for? What am I trying to achieve by doing that? And I think sometimes I see a lot of user researchers not, 
twigging or not, or maybe they've been doing it too long. I don't know. And, I, 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 and it's not just them. I've, I, I've realized I did this myself and that's why it's a self-reflection piece. And it's something I've I stopped myself doing quite a while back, but I realized that we were not concentrating on what the point of it all was. Yes. It becomes a bit of performance, doesn't it? I've done some research. I'll generate some kind of artifact that I can share with the team. And therefore, the that's my job done. done. Artifact's yeah, done. Yeah, yeah. Go, well, that's, no, no, that's actually, part of it, but that's not the ultimate point. Yeah. Yeah. And, and unless that's actually, in, that learning is embedded in the team and the team take it and work with it. Yeah. You've totally. done nothing. You may as yeah. well have not existed. You've added no value, yeah. no impact. And, 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 and therefore, you'd, you'd do a disservice to, your, to, to, to the profession as a whole because you're not actually adding value. Yeah. Um, yes, no, it's, it's a very, very interesting point, isn't it? Um, so how can you ensure then that you, you keep the user front and center and, you know, that you have the user in mind? I mean, the, the power of narrative, I was chatting to someone earlier today about this, the kind of the importance of and you've touched on this already. It's it's not just a bunch of kind of interviews and the artifacts that come out of it. it it's kind of communicating that to stakeholders in a way that is is humanizes it and, and sort of brings the user to life and their pain points in there and, that, and that's what we talk about discovery we say discovery is really the purpose of discovery is to empathize with the user mm. that's yeah. and, and then to share that empathy with the team and yeah. thinking about the best way to do that is really important so mm. you may remember we worked on hmcts um project together and, and again, just uh, just share that acronym. Explain the acronym. Her Majesty's Court and Tribunal, so, Service. Tribunal Service. Yeah. Put me on the put me on the <laughs> test. There, um, yeah, and you know, I, I, I can remember trying to do something really quite simple. I just thought, you know what? Instead of having a, a service blueprint and trying to take everyone through that, let's just have on the wall a storyboard. Let's mm. uh, let's start yeah. with building empathy for who our users are. Mm. Show each step of the journey all the way through. Show where the changes are in the process and, and the service. And what we found was we had everybody using that artifact, and it would change every sprint as we learned more from evaluating mm. with stakeholders and evaluating, you know, the um, the prototypes and and the um, hypothesis setting with the interaction design we'd come together and we'd change that artifact every every sprint but it was kind of magical how that was on the wall and everyone would gravitate to that and they would read it and go through it and it was really easy to explain how the service worked because and people got it because it suddenly takes what is quite abstract sometimes and gives it a very concrete um example of how that would work in real life mm. and i find that is truly a, a really useful artifact for designers. Now, I'm not saying it's the only way, but it's, it's one of the, mm. a good way I found, really, really slow and laborious to build the first version mm. of it. Um, mm. But um, even now, I, you know, I, I really do recommend trying to find ways of representing your, your vision of how the mm. service is going to be in such a way that you capture the hearts and minds of the people who uh you want to look at it and engage with it so you can get their input and um yeah I, I, that's one of the my one of my big learnings i think in my career is trying to find the right artifacts for the right audience mm -hmm. and when it comes to stakeholders 
the storyboard approach, built the empathy, got the message across, and people could communicate. But when I wanted to talk to um, the software developers on the team, service blueprint all the way i could talk them through mm. okay this is what's happening yeah. at this level okay yeah. so back end yeah. all these people are going to hear they're going to go to this computer system the data will flow from here to here mm. I, that obviously that wasn't ever going to be anywhere near the storyboard and they also were not particularly interested in empathizing with the users at that point um right. but then what they wanted to know was okay where's the data coming from and where's it going to go and what we're going to do with yes. it yeah. yeah so yeah choosing the right artifacts for the right audience and I, re I remember vividly actually that exact artifact you're talking about and having again we're in a sort of pre-covid world where there's no way that it wouldn't necessarily work now but having a physical artifact on the wall that sort of you know what's it vertical campfires was referred to in one of those great gds blog posts years back about the value of putting your work up on the wall of the office you're in it was a sort of physical thing that people could gather around and we could sort of point out to the visitors to the office and stakeholders uh kind of what we were working on and how what our thinking was and so on and that, that was yeah very very valuable and don't um, you miss miss the war room i mean that's one of the key yes. things i really miss i i love having a space where you're always meeting and all the walls are adorned with all of your understanding yes. and learning yeah, and yeah, watching it yeah. change. It's almost like having um, ever-changing wallpaper. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and now it's in Google Drive and it's in Miro and it's in all sorts of these tools virtually. But it's not you've surface. Got to go and, it's really it's not surface. Yeah, you've got to go and dig it all out and share it with people. But uh, yeah, And how I miss true. doing stand-up with Post-its. I want to move yes. my Post-it from this column yeah, to this yeah, column yeah. and you know it, we're now doing it on trello or we're if, if we're doing it at all um yes yeah fascinating great stuff i'm going to wrap up with my three card sure. challenge i'm going to put you on the spot so i've got three cards here i've got a club a heart and a diamond i'm going to hold it up on the screen so you can see them and one is a tool one is a technique and one is a trend so if i can just get you to pick a card Okay, let's go with the heart, which is on blue. Are you saying it's a cold heart there? I've, I've, I've mixed it up. These are my uh, hand, <laughs> handmade cards. So this is a tool. Okay. Tell me, a, what's your favorite tool kind of in your day-to-day -day work and why? Okay, there's a tool called Allo. Um, I found it uh, about two years ago. I was doing a search because I used Miro and I liked it, but I found it too expensive to use as a contractor because if I wanted to run workshops, it started to become quite expensive to get people right. to come in and, and um, when I was facilitating workshops. So I was looking for alternatives that were you know, well-priced. Um, and I found it wasn't called Allo in those days. I can't, in fact, now I can't even remember what it's called. It's changed its name. Um, How do you spell Allo? A-double-L-O. Allo, allo. Yep. Allo, allo. Hello. And... Um, yeah, what this does, which I really love, is it takes the concepts of Trello as lists and, and items in a list and yep. then bonds it with the concept of Miro. So if you imagine that you had a Trello board and every item in that Trello you could just pick up and click on and it just opened up into a Miro board, that's basically what it is. So you, every single ticket on your um, backlog then becomes it's the it's not just a ticket it actually becomes the, the work so mm. if you want to for example um one of your tickets on your backlog might be create a stakeholder map so mm. now that ticket becomes the stakeholder map because you go in there you organize a session everyone comes into that ticket you create in that miro equivalent space 
what your stakeholder map is, mm. and then you move it to done, and now you yep. actually have it in your Trello list as the artifact. Um, and right. then when you do a show and tell, your ticket will be show and tell. You go in there, you create your slides in that ticket, and then you can present from within that ticket. And again, your show and tell is done. So, so it's it becomes, like a repository as well. It's like a sort of that's file, file it's, structure. It's, it's managing your work, doing yep. your work, and then becomes a repository. So everything is all in one place in, in such a lovely way that um, it, it's fundamentally changed the way I work. I love it. And um, does it integrate with other tools like Trello and Miro and Drive and... So it, it integrates with so many things. So I can drop in movies in there. Um, it works right. with, um, what's it called? The communication tool that we all, Slack. Slack, Sorry. Slack, yep. Um, yeah, it, it, it does its best to be as integrated with everything as possible. Um, I will check it go out. Go and have a look Sounds at it. Great. Go and check it out. And it's, it's very reasonably priced, especially for consultants like ourselves. Um, right. And yeah, I think their business model is quite comfortable so i can bring hundreds of people into my sessions mm -hmm. if i want to and you can also keep your clients very separate so i've got you know this is national highways project this is the project yeah. i worked on before that here's the project i worked on before that right. i can just jump right. in and you can create multiple canvases multiple um instantations of projects and different parts of the project so it, yeah i just love it you should be on commission i really should be <laughs> fabulous Two more cards. Okay, I've only got two left. Um, I'm going to go for spade. Technique. 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 Hit me with your favourite um, technique. So, funnily enough, I haven't talked about it, and yet it's one of my most important parts of my um, service design career. Participatory design, co-design, actually mm. bringing together um, yeah. people who are going to use the service, people are using the service, stakeholders, and having them all sit around the table and talk through solutions together and work on that together. I, I really think that is the epitome of great design. I, it's when I see magic happen, and that's what I love about that service design role is watching that in action. And sometimes, even if you don't come out with the thing what you've seen is the discussions and dialogues that happened mm. during that design yeah. process that clearly identified positive directions and directions to avoid um mm. but almost every time i always end up with if not a perfect solution generally some kind of nugget that will then point mm. me in the right direction to go and we and you're running a few different sessions and you're pulling different bits like threads and weave them together and then suddenly you've got yourself a really nice solution Mm. No, you and I've done a, you and I've done a few of those together, and I've I've always really enjoyed them and found them. And really, I mean, it's a lot time, of work up front, but it's it's very much worth it, as you say. It's brilliant. And I think that time when so when we were doing those together, um, we were doing a lot. <laughs> I don't yeah. know if you remember, but we were doing them almost yeah. every day for a, a period of a few weeks. And again, just doing that over and over again, working out what works and what doesn't work. How and again, that's yeah. changed physically versus online. So mm. physically, we always worked out: okay, when do we need to start giving people donuts? When do we have to have mm. the breaks so that sugar <laughs> levels are rising, so that we you know, yes. get people back into it again? When do what, choosing which activities are before lunch and after lunch? Because you know when yeah, people come yeah, after yeah. lunch, it, it takes a while to get them back up again. So really looking at people's rhythms of attention and energy and thinking about that, which people don't appreciate that you do as a designer. They just they don't even yep. contemplate that. So, and the fact that the, you know, the service design of workshops, that's a, that's a, 
essay topic in its own right. <laughs> Indeed. Last one. Uh, okay, diamonds. diamonds. Trend. Trend. Um, I think this is a trend that's been around for a while. I don't know if it's fair to call it a trend, but um, design ops. So actually thinking about the operations of design and about how we scale it up and how we our ways of working so that we can communicate together, make the best use of um, people's time and deliver value as quickly and as efficiently as possible. Uh, I find it fascinating. It's where a lot of my attention is spent nowadays is working through how we um, create basically a functioning machine of us all working together so that... I think it's because I'm a gamer and I, I, I love playing games where we're building all these different machines that produce these out, lovely outputs and, um, and that kind of challenge that goes with that. And the fact that, you know, you're working with um, real people who have real needs and motivations and, and working out how that plays out in the real world and how you can you know, build a hypothesis and make a change and very quickly see the result of your change. Um, so yes, design ops, I, I think it's uh, keeps me fascinated. Mm. John, it's been an absolute pleasure as always to chat to you. Thank you so much for your time. No, thank you. Uh, actually, it was much more fun. I was a bit nervous when you, you suggested coming on, but actually um, you're such a lovely host. It made me feel very good. <laughs> That's very kind of you to say so. And lots of fantastic wisdom to impart to the, to the listeners of this. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of the Understanding Users podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, do please like or comment on it on Apple Podcasts or Podbean and feel free to share it more widely so others have a chance to listen as well. Join me again next time when I'll be talking to Gavin Adam, a freelance product head and digital transformation expert who has been providing technology leadership and strategic direction in recent years to a wide variety of government and private sector clients. Until then, stay safe and stay user-centred.